looked at some of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. We looked at the second of four servant songs. And the servant songs are all about Jesus Christ. They're all about the Messiah. And so it's hard to imagine any more comforting words than those. They reminded us that the Messiah is going to be equipped for war. He has the word of God as a sword coming out of his mouth. He is like an arrow that is ready to be shot. He is the covenant that God brings. He himself is the covenant that is the basis of our relationship with God. This, these are words of comfort. He is all that Israel failed to do. <laughs> he is our Savior. Israel could not save us. Christ saves us. So today I want to ask you, what would be the right response to these words of comfort? What would be the response appropriate for such words? And the answer, we don't have to question. We don't have to try to figure them out. The answer is verse 13. This uninhibited response of praise to God. A song of response to the servant. Listen to these words. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. If I could sing, I would, but that would actually be a bad thing, so I won't do it. But that is exactly what our response should be. That is the appropriate response to sing, isn't it? In a lot of these great words, nothing else should compel song like the servant. My question is, what is your response? What is your response to the servant? Did you have an extra step this Thanksgiving? Did you have a song that came out of your mouth? Uh, could people hear a song from you, even if you weren't singing, of praise to your great Savior? Or maybe your response was something like Zion's response here. In verse 14, we are told how God's people responded to the servant song. Surprisingly, they refused to join in. They're not feeling it. They're not seeing it. And verse 14 explains why. Listen to this. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So who is Zion? Zion is not a location, primarily. Zion are the people of God. And they can speak of all the people of God throughout time, but here is speaking specifically of the believing people who are in Babylon. And they feel abandoned. They are in captivity. They are lost. They are lost among an unbelieving, rebellious, idol-worshipping people. 
So how do we know this is a response to the first 13 verses? How do we know this is a response to the servant's song? And I want, I want to focus your attention on the word but here. <laughs> the word but tells us that there's an opposing response and that it's connecting it to the first 13 verses or at least what comes before it some, to some extent. And so what it says here is their response is anything but the response of rejoicing and praise and singing. This is their response to the servant. And you can't help but feel this incredible contrast to verse 13, can you? I mean, you can't miss it when you read this incredible song and then immediately turn to, but the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. So the question is, why can't the people rejoice? Why do they have this complaint that they are giving to God? And the reason is, as we've already mentioned, but I want to focus your attention on those two words. The reason is because God has, in their minds and in their thinking, God has forsaken them and God has forgotten And so when they hear the servant's song, they say, that's great. It's not that they deny it, but they say, what does that have to do with me? What does the servant's song have to do with me? Look at me. I'm in a foreign land. My children have been killed by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is in ruins. I'm under foreign power. Everything is bad. What does this good news have to do with me today. The word Yahweh is used, which means the covenant God, and it says Yahweh, the covenant God, has forgotten me. Do you understand the connection there between the covenant God, the one who promises, the one who is in relationship with his people? They have forgotten me. That word is not used except to make a point. Yahweh Yahweh has forgotten me. And then the word Adonai, specifically referring to the power of God. Adonai, the powerful God, has forsaken me. Both are misguided, but neither complaints are necessarily accusing God of doing wrong. They're not necessarily accusing God of wrong, but they are clearly misguided and they are clearly made with a lack of faith that's supporting them. Perhaps God has finally written me off. Maybe God has come to the end of his rope, and I have fallen off of God's grace. No more grace reserved for me. Perhaps rightly, God has ended his relationship with me. Imagine the feeling. And in fact, if you go to the book of Lamentations, you will see that Jeremiah is writing at this very same time in Babylonian captivity. And you'll hear these same words of Lamet being given. And you also see in Psalms. I know a man named Tim Chalice, who is a model believer, a great example, a great testimony, who has recently lost his 20-year-old son, his one and only son, died and they have no idea why he just died can you imagine how hard it would be to believe that God has not forsaken you that God has not forgotten you 
And I'm not suggesting that this is the right thing, that this is not the right thing to do. I think it is okay to do. But imagine someone telling you at that very moment in your grief, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Imagine someone telling you, and once again, I'm not saying this is wrong to do. I think this is right to do. But imagine someone telling you at that very moment, God is, God loves you. God is all-powerful. You might think, really? It appears to be just the opposite. It appears like God has forsaken me. It appears like God has forgotten me. Have you ever experienced such a time where you knew of the power of God and the love of God, but you could not rejoice in his salvation because it appeared to you that God had forsaken and forgotten you? Our experience, our feelings, can appear to deny the truth that we know in our heads. It could be a great loss. It could be some great depression that is unexplainable. It could be a disease that's ravishing your body. It could be some sin that you just can't seem to break out of, no matter what you do. How could God love me if I'm experiencing this? So how does God respond to such wrong thinking? Does he bash them? Does he ignore them? Does he get angry at them? Does he, see, does he say how foolish you are and slow of thinking? Well, he might say that at other places, but he doesn't say that here, does he? God, right here, wants his people to walk in the comfort of their Savior. And that's what I want for each and every one of you. I want you to walk in the comfort of your Savior. If you are walking in Christ, if you are believing in Christ, if you are trusting in Him, God says in this passage, I want you to know the comfort of your Savior. And that is how you glorify God. That is how you honor Him with your life. In this world that has no comfort, that has no real comfort, God offers us true and real comfort. And so the question is, how does God comfort his people? How does God bring comfort to them? How does he graciously and compassionately bring us comfort? Well, first, God comforts his people by telling them that he always loves them. He loves them at this very moment to the fullest amount. That's an incredible thought, isn't it? Have you thought about that? That if you're in Christ, God loves you to the fullest amount possible. In verses 15 through 17, God expresses how much he continually, at every moment, presently loves his people by telling them that they are always on his mind, that he's always thinking about them, that they are favorably in his thinking at all times. That's an incredible thought in itself. And so to convey that he has not forgotten his people, in verse 15, God compares his connection with his people to the greatest of human connections possible, of a mother with her nursing baby. Look at verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God asks, can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she? Is that possible? Well, think about it for a minute. There is no greater bond on earth than a, than, than a baby 
to her mother. And not only did the mother just bring this baby into the world, this baby is dependent on the mother for the baby's very life, but also this baby is nursing and finding its very life from the mother. It's almost this mystical, incredible union that is going on between the child and the child's mother. You know, a father can have a special connection with their child, right? But a child cannot give birth. A, a father cannot give birth to a child. And a father cannot nurse a child, right? You know, yesterday I was reminded of what it's like for a, a little baby to be away from their mother for too long. <laughs> Liberty had stayed at our house just for a little bit too long. And Liberty was just out of control. <laughs> Uncontrollable. So it's kind of like asking if Samantha can forget Grayson. If Hope can forget Faith. Or if Amelia can forget Liberty. And I'm sure they would all say, of course not, right? Of course not. You'd assume that the next point would be something like, well, God's love for his people is just like the love of a mother for her nursing baby. But that's not actually what it says here, is it? What does it say here? It says God's love is greater than that. God's love is greater than that. You know, every mother has their faults. And some parents do not merely accidentally forget their ch children, but some do not care at all for their children, as impossible as that seems to imagine. So God says that my love is faultless. I never forget my children, ever. God's attachment is greater than a child with her mother. God's love transcends the best the world can offer. And the same point is made in Psalm 27, verse 10. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. Isn't that nice to know? To convey that God has not forgotten his people, God calls attention to his palms. And as if they were raised in the air. And he says, you're engraved right there on my own palms. And therefore, you are always in front of me. I will never forget you. Listen to verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, if you had something really important that you needed to remember, what might you do? <laughs> you might uh, probably wouldn't write it on your forehead, right? That would just look really strange. But you might write it on your palm. And usually we would write something maybe with ink that would uh, easily get erased and be lost. But if you really wanted something to be permanent, you would engrave it, right, with stone. And you would have it there forever. In a similar way, God says his people are engraved on the palm of his hands. It is though God says, look at, at, look at, I have you, look at my palms. You are engraved there. You are always before me. What this means is that not only are you not forgotten, but you are always near to him. He is constantly thinking of you. And I don't know if you already thought about this, but this is part of one of the lines in the, in the song, before the throne of God above. 
is taken from this verse. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And we have to remember with this imagery that this is just imagery, right? God does not have hands. God does not literally have palms, right? This is imagery that is spoken in such a way that we can understand that God never forgets us. God doesn't need reminders either, does he? When you think about it, God doesn't need reminders. But there's a real sense in which we are engraved on Jesus' hands, aren't we? In his scars. When Jesus talked to Thomas, he could have said, you're engraved on my hands. <laughs> when he said, look at the scars on my hands. There's a sense in which those scars remind him constantly of his love for us. Now what might throw you off is the second point that is made here. Instead of saying that when he looks at his palms, he constantly sees you, what he says is that his walls, your walls are always before me. <laughs> and so you might wonder, what in the world does that mean? What does he mean by his wall, your, your walls are always before me? And it does not mean a whole lot to us when we hear about walls, does it? We don't have a great need for walls anymore. Walls are not that important and significant to us. But in those days, walls were everything. Walls were everything. It meant safety. It meant protection. It meant that you had the comfort of knowing that you were secure from invaders, from people on the outside. When a wall was destroyed, the people were defeated. And how do we know that? Just look at Jericho. Remember Jericho? When their walls were destroyed, Jericho was defeated. That's what that meant. And so for God's people, their walls were down, destroyed. They were rubbish. They were scattered. There were no more walls. And so outwardly, it would appear that they were defeated. There was no security for them. They were, in fact, in the walls of a foreign nation. They were demolished and defeated. So for God to say that their walls are always before him means that they were as good as restored, that they were protected, that at the very moment, though it might not appear that way in reality, they were safe and secure before God. So what should this mean for us as God's people? For God's believing people, what does this mean? Well, you might appear and feel vulnerable in this world that is falling apart around us. You might feel insecure and like you have no hope that your walls are destroyed and that there is no hope for you, no protection, no safety. But God says, my plans are being fulfilled for you and they will be fulfilled. And those plans are for your good and for your protection. You are therefore perfectly secure and safe without any reason to fear at all in this world. In the truest sense, the walls are up for God's people, no matter what they appear like on the outside. This is how God sees you. And remember that how God sees things is always the way they are. Always the way they are. More than what you see with your eyes, what it looks like around you. How God sees things is the truest reality of all. This means that no matter what your situation you're in, believer, whether you're in Babylon 
wherever you are, you are not outside of God's protection or safety. You know, the Babylonian walls looked huge and protective, but they had no protection. They had no safety at all, right? Don't be deceived by the walls of this world that offer protection and safety. God's people, though their walls were in shambles, were completely protected. So my question for you is, do you want comfort today? Then this is what you must do. God's people must respond and take action. If you want comfort today, you must meditate on the love of God for you. So first, look at the servant. Look at the servant, then meditate on what that means about God's love for you. Take in the truths of the servant and think about what does that mean about God's love for me. Meditate on it. Think about it. Know that you are always completely favorable in the mind of God. And yes, he will discipline you, but that's for your good. It's because he loves you. I say that all the time to my children. This is because I love you, but you have no idea how that could possibly be. <laughs> but I do. And so much more does God. Marvel at how much God loves you, children of God. Marvel, be amazed. This will keep you from being distraught when you lose your health, because you will. This will keep you from being distraught when you lose your loved ones, because you will. We are dying. The world is dying around us. This world is crumbling. You need to know the love of God for you. God comforts his people by, secondly, promising to show his love for them in the future to all who wait on him. The promises of God are mind-blowing. <laughs> and verses 17 through 26 are devoted to God telling them, this is your future. These are the promises of God. This is what awaits you. This is how much God loves you. For all who are waiting on him, they have such a great future that it is mind-blowing, that it is incomprehensible. God says that he will restore the exiled children in verses 17 through 18. You see, there's this bleak situation that they are in, and you even see it by their downcast eyes. It says in verse 18 that their eyes were downcast. They were not lifted up. And if you look at the history of Israel, they were defeated over and over and over again. Um, brief times of victory and strength. And likewise, the church has been torn apart over and over and over again. They look like they're defeated over and over again. And our lives can similarly be decimated from the results of sin in the world around us. But God says to discouraged Zion, as if it was a present reality, your walls are being rebuilt. What an incredible thought. Your walls are being rebuilt. This is a future thing, but God says as if it was presently happening. That's as true and confident that we can be that God is going to take care of us and protect us. And he is our security. God says your walls are being rebuilt. Jesus is our safety. Jesus is our security. Not only that, but God also says your enemies who destroyed you are leaving. All that would bring us fear is leaving us. There are nothing to fear in our enemies who stand against us. 
But then God calls Zion to lift up her eyes. And so these downcast eyes are being lifted up and says, your children are returning to you. And Zion here is that of, a, of, an, of an elderly woman who has lost all her children. And here are all her children returning to her. And that's the picture we are given throughout these verses. She will put them on as an ornament, as a bride adorned for marriage. And now some of these images seem to conflict, but don't worry about that. The point is not to make sense of how they all fit together, but to tell you that this is a glorious thing that is going on. He just throws out all these images to give us a picture of what's going on. Help us to see the greatness of it. God does not just say these things, but notice he swears, as I live, I will restore her. God says, I am going to back up the truth that I say by swearing, as I live, these things will come to pass. Incredible truths for God's people today in a world that is broken and falling apart to know that God is going to restore his people. Not only will God restore his people, but God says to restore his people in such a way that they will be so numerous they will not be able to fit in the land. <laughs> they will be so numerous there will be no elbow room. <laughs> They'll be so tight. And that's in verses 19 through 21. You see, the problem was she had lost all her children. There was nobody left. They had been killed in, from Babylon. Now there was a new problem. A good problem. In contrast to the great loss they had experienced, God says that there would be this triumphant return, so much so that there was no room to support them in the land. They would be spilling over and knocking each other over. There's no room for them. Just imagine that. And on top of this, there'll be no logical explanation to make sense of this great outpouring and this, and this great returning of the exiles. There'll be no explanation for it. It'll be miraculous. The older woman is astonished that all these children are returning. She's like, where did they come from? That's what she says. Can this be true? How can this be? And you have to remember that in those days, there was nothing worse than, be, than having no children and having no husband. And that's the case with this woman. But now they just come streaming in. Kind of like Sarah or Hannah or Naomi. Imagine all these children coming streaming in. And the same question about her children, about where are they coming from, is asked three different times, slightly differently for emphasis here. It's just, it's just conveying astonishment. And the only explanation for this is that this is not the result of Zion's efforts, nor Zion's strength, nor Zion's wisdom, but rather it is the result of a kind and gracious God. This is the result of the gospel. This is the powerful result. John 1 verse 12 tells us where these children come from. Not of the will of man, but of God. That's where it comes from. This is a supernatural work of God, supernatural birth. This is the church. These are not natural children, but the seed of the servant who is Christ. That's what we read in Isaiah 53 verse 10. These are the seed of the servant. Isaiah 54 verse 1 as well. One commentator wrote this. In ourselves we are barren and bereaved, no more able to bring abundant life or eternal life onto this planet than we are able to give ourselves physical life. If abundant eternal life is to be ours, it will be the gift of God. And he will look on in amazement saying, where did 
that come from? You see, this is so much more than the exiles who returned in 539 B.C. Only a few returned when Cyrus gave the edict to liberate God's people. Instead, the majority settled for the comforts they had discovered in Babylon. So Isaiah is speaking here of a spiritual reality. We see this as well in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, where the nations are streaming in. We see this in Acts as Jew and Gentile are flooding into the church. And we see this in various countries today as numerous people are being saved. There is this staggering, beyond explanation, returning of the exiles to God and his salvation. This is the true heavenly Zion. God then says he will not only restore his people, but he will do so through a great reversal in the hearts of those who were once enemies and hostile to his people. This is God's restoring of the Gentiles in verses 22 through 23. In Isaiah, 52, Isaiah 5 verse 26, we see God raising a signal. The word signal comes up in these verses. God is going to raise up a signal and then all these great kings, all these people will help and protect God's people on their way to their final pilgrimage, on their way home. Not only that, but they'll, they'll, they'll lick the dust off the feet of God's people. An amazing picture of the reversal of the hearts of the Gentiles. Even kings and queens will do so and take care of God's people. But I want us to understand that this happens because God raises a signal. And in chapter 5, verse 26, a signal is raised, but it's to bring judgment on the Jews. It's to bring judgment on them. The nations come together to bring judgment. But here there's this great reversal in the hearts of the Gentiles. It's the opposite here. They come and help and protect and take care of God's people. An astonishing work of God. What is God doing? He's showing the power that he has, that he can do the impossible. He has the power to transform hearts. We don't have to fear the power of the mighty around us. We don't have to fear our inability to save people. God is the one who saves. Never underestimate the power of God to accomplish his will. He has the power to do all things. And what is more, God will bring this great reversal with ease. He merely lifts up a banner, a sign in this Great transformation, this great reversal takes place. When does this happen? Well, there's a picture of it when Cyrus restores the exiles to Jerusalem. But clearly, the banner raised has to do more than with the Babylonian exiles. The banner that brings the nations to obedience of faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 5 that he is bringing about the obedience of the faith of the nations. And we see this in Acts as well. God says he will not only restore his people, but he will completely defeat every enemy. So I hope you're getting this grand, incredible picture of God's promises being fulfilled and what awaits God's people. And he says that he'll completely defeat your enemies in verses 24 through 26. And the question asks, can, can a prey be, be can, 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 the, can, can the, the ones that the prey has taken hostage, can they be taken from the enemy? Is that possible? From the strong man, can anyone be taken from their grasp? And the answer is yes. God says, I can do that and I will do that. I will deliver my people from their enemy. And not only that, but the graphic language 
is here, that he'll make them eat their own flesh and be drunk with their own blood as with wine. The language here is that of being under siege because that's what they would end up doing because they would have nothing else to eat. And so God says he'll not only defeat them, but he will cause the enemies of God to suffer greatly. And so they'll have no one else to devour, so they'll be forced to devour themselves. This language is appropriate for a people who had watched their own children and husbands and wives be slaughtered before their own eyes. He is saying in the most graphic way, God will bring it back on their own heads. So they would have welcomed this language. And so what we need to understand here, what is the point here? Standing against God's purpose is the most dangerous thing in the world. It is the most self-destructive thing in the world to stand against God and his purpose. So my question for you is, do you want comfort? Well, if you want comfort, you have to know the promises of God. We live in a day and an age where we do not see the promises of God in their fullness. We see glimpses of God's power around us when people are saved, but we don't see the fullness of God's great power. And so we need to live with faith in the promises of God. We need to live daily with the reality of the future hope that awaits us. That Christ is returning, and with him will come all the blessings of God in their fullness. And we will behold them, and we will see the vindication of God. Everything we, will, we have hoped in will be seen with our very own eyes. And it cannot be anything else. So why would God be so committed to your comfort and restoring you, his people? Why does he love you so much? Why does he offer you such great promises and why does he love you so much? Is it because you're so lovely and the reason God has chosen you through opposition, through difficulties, through struggles to wait on him in order that he might save you is to prove that he is God. That's why he is doing this. That's why you are in the place you are in. Because God is interested in showing that he is God. We see this in verse 23b. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Only those who wait for God will not be put to shame. Those who live with confident expectation in God will receive the promises of God. And 26 says, Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You must wait through the difficult trials because God wants to display through you that he is the Lord through delivering you. And this means if you are loved for God's namesake, that you are loved to the greatest degree possible. Think about that for a second. There is no greater way, degree that God could love you than to love you for his own namesake. God would never deny his own name. And God loves his own name. God loves to glorify himself. And therefore you are loved supremely. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't even matter what you've done. If you are in Christ, God could not love you more because he loves his own name supremely. And that's why he loves you today. So don't base God's, your understanding of God's love for you on your performance. Don't base the future promises of God on your performance, but base it on how much God loves his own name. 
That's how much God loves you. So you, church, need to know how much God loves his own name and how great God is. And then you'll be overflowing with joy and praise to God. And you'll know that all the promises of God are true. So I am going to summarize this last part before we conclude. You see, the problem in verses 1 through 3 is not that God has failed. God has not divorced them. God has not paid off some debt by selling them off. God has no debts. God would not truly divorce his people and ultimately divorce them. That's ridiculous. The problem is their sin. The problem, the reason the people are in this predicament and they feel like God doesn't love them is because of their own sin. And so what should such a condition do for the people? It should cause them to cry out to God to save them. God says, my arm is not too short to save. Look at I am the creator of the heavens and the earth. The, the problem you have is that you refuse to believe in me. And you refuse to respond to my voice. Because you do not believe that I am powerful to save you. That is the only explanation. God says, the problem is with you. It is not a lack of love. It is not that I have forgotten you. It's not that I've forsaken you. It's not that I love you too little. And I could not prove my love to you any more than I have. And all we have to do is look at Jesus, right? The crucified Savior, God sending his own son to die for us on the cross. There is no greater love possible than that. If we do not respond, it's because we do not believe that God is who he says he is. It's because we refuse to believe the God of the Bible. Will you listen and respond in faith? You and I are going to experience very difficult times in our lives. We will feel and look like, our feelings will say we're forsaken. God has forgotten us. Our appearance of things will say we're forsaken. God has forgotten us. Just like Tim Chalice is going through a, a, an indescribable, difficult time in his life. I, I can't even imagine we will go through difficult times as well. Where do we find comfort in our lives that we are not forsaken? How are we to be struck down but not destroyed, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 9? The only hope is to live by faith in God's word today. Only then can you remember that you are remembered by God. Only then can you not forget that you are not forgotten by God. We can do this only when we walk by faith and not by sight. And the word of God must override and direct our feelings in the way things appear to our lives. How does the word of God enable you to fight the fight of faith? It directs you, first of all, to look at the servant and his work. It enables you to meditate on his present love that comes through his servant. It enables you to think on his future promises that come through his servant. Listen to his voice and find the comfort that comes from God. If you are not a child of God, you have no reason for comfort today. Look to God for salvation. All your comfort is, is in Him. If you are a child of God, then all the comfort of God belongs to you today. Look to God and rejoice in the comfort that you have. 
William Cowper wrote this poem, and I'll close with this. And the poem is entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh take courage. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Dear good and gracious God, Lord, we confess that it is so hard, Lord, it is so hard to see sometimes what your servant and his work has to do with us. Lord, we look around us when we judge things by our feelings and by the appearance of things. God, it just looks like you have forsaken us, that you have forgotten us. But Lord, we ask that you would enable us to live by faith. We pray that you would turn our eyes to you, Jesus, that you would enable us to see the greatness of your love for us, that your love could not be greater for your people. Lord, I pray that you'd open up our eyes to see your great love for us today. I pray that you bring us comfort, that you have not forsaken, you have not forgotten us. And Lord, I pray as well that the future promises of God would, would be so clear before our eyes that you would motivate us to continue to live by faith. Lord, prevent us from falling away. Prevent us from falling in love with this world and the things of this world, from being distraught and from moving to despair. Lord, may you reignite the, the joy and the song in our hearts by reminding us of who you are and what you've done. Thank you, God. Thank you for such a great salvation. Thank you for your love for us and your great promises. And may we rejoice in you today in Jesus' name. Amen.